This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burns Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to Surgery IC Rounds. I want to introduce some new uh, concepts that I'd like to consider. Keep in mind that this podcast was originated to assist as kind of a non-traditional tool for education of residents and, and attending and fellow physicians. And we've been able to really kind of develop it into a tool that's being used by nursing, nursing students, respiratory therapists, paramedics, and anyone really interested in the care of the critically ill or injured patient. Uh, there's a lot of questions that people send me, and I appreciate the feedback. A couple of things I'd recommend. Uh, the price is right for the podcast. Keep in mind, we keep this free. And if you have positive feedback, by all means, we'd recommend you go to the iTunes website and leave some positive feedback. That does certainly help with people's um, willingness to kind of try the show out. The other thing that I'd recommend is we started a Facebook site. Um, there's 15 million plus people on Facebook. And if you do a search on ICU rounds, you see we've created a, a Facebook uh, group there. And there could be an exchange of ideas. Often I've learned that people can learn as much from their colleagues and their peers as they do from any kind of professor or instructor. So give that a shout and give that a try. Um, on Facebook, try icrounds.com. Try to uh, join us, be a member. If you have questions, you want to exchange ideas, uh, you have an interesting x-ray, uh, put it up. Make sure you um, protect patients' privacy or so forth. If you have a question, you want to start a discussion thread, uh, whatever, uh, the site is there to, again, to act as a site for educational exchange. A patient was admitted to our unit this week that had a uh, really serious problem, and it's a problem that I find uh, very interesting, and it's not something that's unique to surgical patients or something that's unique to burn patients. Um, this is an elderly gentleman who has sustained some burns, obviously has been admitted to a burn unit, but he was profoundly cachectic. He had profound weight loss and uh, was just an overall general weakness. And one of the things that this brings up is the topic of refeeding syndrome. Now, refeeding syndrome is, is something that historically is interesting. If you've ever seen the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers, it was also a very good book. But in this um, HBO movie, uh, members of the 101st Airborne, the United States Army, actually, interesting enough, uh, the base, their post is not too far from here in Nashville, Tennessee, there in Fort Campbell. But they came across in World War II a concentration camp. And um, these uh, Screaming Eagles, the, the, the soldiers, went to liberate uh, these folks who had been in this concentration camp with profound weight loss, cachectic, skin and bones, uh, hadn't had any adequate nutrition in, in weeks, if not longer. And in this movie, uh, the uh, GIs start giving um, these... Um, uh, these prisoners, things like chocolate bars and their meals ready to eat, and the company physicians stopped. No, 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 you can't do that. And some of the soldiers were visibly and very vocally upset about that. Well, that is actually a pretty good illustration of something called, they were worried about refeeding syndrome. And those of you who don't know, I've got a house full of kids, and they actually watch this show called Survivor. And what's interesting on this show is that you'll have people that are on this desert island. They're eating grubs and, and only food that they can catch or, or wild plants, and they lose 
10, 15 pounds over a period of several weeks. And what these producers of this show will do is they'll have a competition. And then often what do they offer as a prize for the competition is this very extravagant, full-featured, multi-course meal. And invariably what happens the next day is the winners of this prize are suffering from abdominal pain and diarrhea. And I always find this fascinating that they continue to make the same mistake on this TV show because these people are having a refeeding syndrome. A refeeding syndrome is a life-threatening constellation of cardiovascular, pulmonary, hepatic, renal, neuromuscular, metabolic, and hematological abnormalities that typically follow an inappropriate uh, alimentary resuscitation in a severely malnourished or starved individual. Typically nowadays, uh, we typically see this in anorexia nervosa as one of the more frequent clinical presentations uh, which our patients are at risk for a refeeding syndrome. However, we can often see it in the malnourished elderly patients, such as the patient that uh, we've treated uh, this past week. And we see with some regular occurrence, particularly in elderly patients, patients, uh, patients uh, who have a t- tumor burden, such as oncology patients who are receiving chemotherapy, and the post-operative patient uh, could also be at risk. The real key is recognizing individuals who are prone to refeeding syndrome and understanding the compensatory physiological changes and mechanisms uh, that result in these and, and what these nutritional implications are. And basically, you need to be aware of this to try to prevent some of the morbidity and even the mortality the death that can be associated by refeeding our patients. In order to get a, a somewhat an understanding of, of what are some of the dangers of refeeding somebody who's had periods of prolonged starvation, we have to get kind of behind the physiology of what goes on when somebody is starving. And I have another podcast where I talk about some of the metabolic changes that occur with catabolism and anabolism. And I'll talk about it, twins where we have one person that we injure and another person that we starve. And when we starve, our body really tries to slow down quite a bit and tries to do what it can to try to conserve energy uh, and uh, limit uh, loss of, of functional proteins. Typically within the first 24 to 72 hours of fasting, blood glucose levels begin to decline. Insulin concentrations decrease while glucagon levels uh, increase. And this results in a mobilization of the glucose stores, which are principally in the form of glycogen. Now, because of lack of glucose 6-phosphatase and the uh, uh, what's called GLUT2 transporters, skeletal muscle glycogen can only really supply glucose to myocytes, where liver glycogen is catabolized and provides glucose uh, for the entire body. Now, this is the problem process of glycogen lysis. Now, this initial change aids in the supply of glucose for glucose-dependent tissues. Now, that's important to remember, what are the glucose-dependent tissues? Well, brain, renal medulla, and red blood cells. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen that on things such as surgical in-service exams or perhaps even a critical care board exam. But after about 72 hours of starvation, the glycogen stores in the liver and the skeletal muscle are fully uh, or certainly mostly depleted. And um, glucose synthesis occurs predominantly from lipid and protein breakdown products. And this is when we get into the concept of uh, lipolysis and gluconeogenesis. Now, specifically, release of large quantities of fatty acids and glycerol from adipose tissue and amino acids from skeletal muscle are observed. Uh, Hepatic fatty acids and beta-oxidation 
produce ketone bodies. And the ketone bodies, if you need to know, you should know, are things like acetoacetate, beta-hydroxybutyrate, and acetone. And these can be reconverted uh, to acetyl-CoA. And this is uh, able to produce energy through the Krebs cycle. Now, energy in the form of glucose is also synthesized from endogenous glycerol, the gluconeogenic amino acids. And this is a question that will occur frequently. And that gluconeogenic amino acid is principally alanine and glutamine. Um, and uh, lactate and pyruvate uh, produce glycolysis in this occurs through the Cori cycle. And if you're one of the residents of my service, you know you have been or certainly will be asked that question. Overall, what happens is, is this adaption of alternative energy sources results in a, a significant muscle wasting, total body depletion of electrolytes, magnesium, potassium, and phosphate. So we have uh, our patient uh, that is basically adapted to I don't know, maybe it's a green way of doing it, but they've gone to kind of an alternative fuel type system here. And they're using things such as fat and protein catabolism to generate their carbohydrates to sustain carbohydrate type metabolism. And then what happens is when we start refeeding them, we get this massive swing from fat and protein catabolism to using back to carbohydrate metabolism. And this stimulates very dramatic and catastrophic increases in insulin production. Now, this increase in insulin secretion results in intracellular shifts of glucose as well as obligatory cellular uptake of electrolytes such as phosphate, magnesium, and potassium. If the massive shifts of these very important electrolytes aren't enough, you, by having this sudden introduction of carbohydrate, this can actually reduce both water and sodium excretion, and this results in expansion of the intracellular fluid compartment, and this could rapidly produce things such as fluid overload, pulmonary edema, as well as cardiac decompensation. The electrolyte problems that we said that we can see are really profound and life-threatening hypophosphatemia, severe hypokalemia, moderate to severe hypomagnesemia, as well as development of Wenicke's encephalopathy. Let's break these down one at a time. Hypophosphatemia, we can see the hypophosphatemia down to uh, a phosphate of, say, less than one or less than one and a half. The character, uh, this is the electrolyte abnormality that we typically focus on in refeeding syndromes, and this can lead to problems such as cardiac arrhythmias, respiratory failure, rhabdomyolysis, and confusion. I think phosphate people really underestimate the importance of, hype, uh, of hypophosphatemia. Keep in mind that the energy of the body is really in the form of ATP, adenosine triphosphate, and you really can't carry on a lot of your energetics in the absence of phosphate. The other thing you need to be mindful of is that we have something that really controls the shift of our oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. Again, something that will bring you back to some biochemical or biochemistry nightmares. But with changes of 2,3 DPG, this really can affect the movement of our oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. The other kind of what I would call a sucker punch thing that could happen to you is the development of a lactic acidosis. We typically think of, oh, somebody's got an elevated serum lactate or they've got a lactic acidosis. And this typically is related to something we call oxygen kinetics, that the body is running in oxygen debt. It's not getting enough oxygen, even because of a hypovolemia or anemia or, or cardiac failure. And since we're not getting enough oxygen, this is a rate-limiting step 
in our oxygen production, and this produces lactic acidosis. Remember, glucose goes to pyruvate. If there's not enough oxygen, the electron transport chain can't be carried out. Krebs cycle shuts down. You're sitting there with pyruvate. Pyruvate gets shipped off to uh, through pyru the enzyme pyruvate dehydrogenase. You've got lactate, and you get your lactic acidosis. And over and over and over and over again in the intensive care units, we see elevated lactate. We need to give them blood. Elevated lactate. We need to give them fluid. Elevated lactate. We need to improve their cardiac output. But in a hypophosphatemia, you can get a type of lactic acidosis that is not due to a decrease in oxygen delivery. And this is called a type 2 lactic acidosis. And it's due to the hypophosphatemia. You could put a swan in. You could transfuse these patients. You could put them on dobutamine. And as long as they're hypophosphatemic, you're not going to see an elevation of that lactate. Or you're not going to see a, a return of that lactate to normal. What are some of the other electrolyte abnormalities? We said severe hypokalemia, and this could be potassium levels uh, less than 2.5, and, and you know that potassium is a vitally important electrolyte, and this could result in some really severe problems. This can result in paralysis, respiratory compromise, rhabdomyolysis, muscle necrosis, and changes in myocardial contraction as well as signal conduction. I want to break these down a little bit. Paralysis, that seems pretty self-evident. That's a really bad thing if you can't move or you can't move your diaphragm, you're not going to breathe, and certainly that's a very time-limited problem, uh, and clearly that creates respiratory compromise. But rhabdomyolysis, I don't think that most people are aware that when you have profoundly low levels of potassium, this creates the condition of rhabdomyolysis. Rhabdomyolysis is a breakdown of muscle, and it, produce, it releases um, toxins into the blood. We have an entire podcast dedicated to this toxic, this topic, and you get muscle necrosis. When you get muscle necrosis, you also release the protein uh, myoglobin, and myoglobin is a poison to the kidney if left untreated, and um, that will result in renal failure. Uh, obviously, changes in myocardial contraction in regards of cardiac strength, as well as conduction abnormalities creating cardiac arrhythmias. So you need to be uh, uh, very uptight about a hypokalemia of this magnitude. And in another podcast, in, in talking about the treatment of hypokalemia, we talk about the magnitude of, of potassium depletion that's associated with a potassium level of this low, uh, this low of a two and a half. Now, moderate to severe hypomagnesemia, we're defining that as a magnesium concentration of, say, less than one milligram per deciliter. This can produce uh, EKG changes, tetany, convulsions, as well as seizures. Now, we need to be able to identify which of these patients are at risk. Now, clearly, our patient came in, and you can see every bone in their body, and the skin is just hanging on them. Or the example that I gave earlier of somebody in a concentration camp, you know, that's somebody that you can diagnose from the door. But all too often, we really underestimate, I think, patients who are at a nutritional risk. It's generally believed that the most important factor in managing refeeding syndrome is prevention and identifying the patients who are at risk. And Perhaps we're not as good as identifying those patients who are at risk. As a general rule, patients with a weight loss of greater than 10% within a two to three month period, uh, such as prolonged fasting, rapid weight loss after bariatric surgery, prolonged IV fluid use, or individuals who are less than 70% of their ideal body weight. Now, this could be cancer patients, uh, elderly patients, patients in third world patient populations. Uh, these are the patients who are at greatest risks for the development of a refeeding syndrome. 
having laid out the problem a little bit, I really want to get into some of the kind of cool physiology of what makes this. I, I think this is a really neat disease process, and, and uh, I want to kind of share to you what's going on, why things are shifting, why why as we give people carbohydrates, things really start to kind of uh, get kind of crazy. Potassium and magnesium are the most abundant intracellular cations. Now, losses of body cell mass in the malnourished patient causes a, basically a whole body depletion of magnesium uh, and potassium. But the serum concentrations of these two electrolytes remain normal or near normal during starvation because of their release from tissue uh, stores and bone stores. So your patient comes in, they're profoundly cachectic, you get a magnesium level and a potassium level, and it looks normal, uh, but you have to be mindful that you've been kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul. You've been taking it out of the bone. You've been taking it out of tissue stores. A, a corollary to this is kind of like the hyperkalemia that you see early on when the treatment of something like a diabetic ketoacidosis. Even though the number is telling you on the, on the laboratory the number is high, you have to think past the number, beyond the number. What's the physiology that's going on? Because in the case of a DKA, you know that potassium is high now, but you know that the body's total body depleted, and a few hours from now you're going to have a hypokalemia. And in this circumstance, with the refeeding syndrome, you have somebody who is going to have a a normal uh, laboratory potassium or magnesium, but you have to know that the total body is depleted. As you begin to refeed these people, there's an increase in protein synthesis rates. Body cell mass and glycogen stores uh, begin to kind of replenish during the refeeding, and this results in an increased uptake of potassium into the cells as well as an uptake of magnesium. Additionally, you have an increase in insulin uh, secretion, and this hyperinsulinemia during refeeding increases the cellular uptake of potassium and this can cause a rapid decline in its intravascular concentration. The other thing you need to kind of put into your calculus of this is that we see you'll we said that you'll see people's glucose levels go up. And if you're not thinking and say, oh well, I've got to keep people between this eighty to one ten or what have you for their blood sugar and I'm adding additional insulin, and then their endogenous insulin starts to kick up, what's going to happen to the aggravation of their electrolyte shift? It's going to aggravate it and result in in putting their magnesium and their potassium into the basement. Additionally, the state of chronic malnutrition results in a decrease in the cardiac muscle mass. There's also a decrease in the stroke volume as well as the end-diastolic volume, which again, remember, is a, the preload. Patients will typically have bradycardia and a fragmentation of the cardiac myofibrils. Now, cardiac myofibril fragmentation, what might that do? Well, if you start looking at some of your uh, uh, enzymes, those might be positive, and it might not be that the patient has had some sort of myocardial ischemic event, but they're suffering from a nutritionally related cardiomyopathy. Now, addition, carbohydrate refeeding increases the concentration of circulating insulin. We've talked about that. And with that increased level of insulin, this increases sodium and water resorption by the renal tubules. So we've got, or you know, the increased insulin is pulling water back into the body pulling sodium back into the body and if hypophosphatemia develops it can really impair oxygen unloading from the red blood cells and we've talked about how this is affected particularly in regards to the movement of what we call the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve that oxygen binds oxygen or excuse me hemoglobin binds oxygen more tightly and then when it gets out of the peripheral tissue it doesn't want to give it up and you have this peripheral tissue that's starving for oxygen and, and red blood cells basically being 
stingy with it and not allowing the, the deprived oxygen to have it. Patients will also have increased susceptibility to ventricular tachyarrhythmias. Um, if the serum phosphate level levels drop below 2, again, myocardial perform- performance will also be uh, impeded. These uh, profoundly uh, malnourished individuals can also have an increased risk of significant fluid retention as well as congestive heart failure after we've initiated nutritional therapy, particularly using things such as water, glucose, and sodium. And uh, this will result in in, um, aggravating a potential cardiovascular collapse. Uh, Thiamine deficiency can cause the so-called wet beriberi, and this is also reported to contribute to some of the cardiovascular difficulties associated with refeeding. now, thiamine, you'll remember, is a essential coenzyme for several enzymes, enzyme systems in carbohydrate metabolism. And if somebody has a thiamine deficiency, uh, if you're giving too much carbohydrate and they have that limited thiamine availability, this will basically precipitate an acute thiamine deficiency state because you don't have enough thiamine to keep up with the increase in carbohydrate metabolism. Now, Therefore, you need to be mindful of that. If you go up on high glucose concentrations in TPN in patients that are prone to this effect, you'll basically precipitate a thiamine-deficient state. Other cardiovascular problems, we said we talked about ventricular tachyarrhythmias, which could be certainly fatal, particularly in the first week of refeeding. And you can also, um, these may be preceded by the prolongation of a QT interval. If you don't know what a QT interval is or have some questions about it, we would refer you to our podcast particularly that, that, that is on that topic uh, on a prolongation of QT interval. We talked about how they shift uh, their uh, uh, from a carbohydrate metabolism to utilization of fatty acids and proteins. Now, starvation and malnutrition will cause uh, changes in the anatomy, the microscopic anatomy of the GI tract, and therefore the bowel is not going to be as effective as it should be in digestion as well as absorption of both nutrients and water. Now, when uh, malnutrition is severe, oral refeeding uh, can be associated with increased incidence of diarrhea and even death. And again, think about our, our uh, TV show, Survivor, where these people are starved for a period of several weeks, and then all of a sudden, they end up getting this reward dinner, and what do they do the next day? They've got the scoots in the worst way. So um, those are some of the most severe complications that we can see, and they can uh, resolve after about one to two, two weeks of really slow and very deliberate refeeding. So when you approach these patients, you need to be very judicious with the administration of fluids and electrolytes. You need to be very deliberate. Go very slow. Um, And you want to replace the fluid and electrolytes as you need to uh, before beginning the feeds to prevent congestive heart failure. You want to provide um, vitamin supplementation, and that should be given routinely. Severe malnourished patients will be poikilothermic. What that means is they're basically um, cold-blooded animals. They're going to have a very low body temperature. Add that in addition to the fact that you have a patient who... in our case, is a burn patient, and they're typically prone to lose uh, extensive amounts of heat. So you need to keep the ambient temperatures pretty high, much like you would a burn patient. And if it's a burn patient who has a refeeding syndrome, you need to be more um, mindful of the fact that the patients will get hypothermic. And you need to increase the core temperature slowly. Remember, things that happen quickly, correct quickly. Things that happen slowly, such as this, you want to correct more slowly.
BD needs to be administered very slowly and increased gradually. It's typically, um, you want to go and begin the feeding at roughly 20 kilocalories per kilogram per day, and uh, or about half the needs with about a 1 to 1.5 gram per kilogram per day of protein. And you really need to be very careful to correction of electrolyte abnormalities. We used to admit these people and start them, say, at half rates and get one or two sets of electrolytes over a period of a day and take them up the next day. That's probably not the way we need to go about these. We've been admitting these people have been going very, very slowly, getting several uh, electrolyte panels throughout the day, looking at your basic metabolic electrolytes, but also looking at those intracellular cations, the phosphorus, the magnesium, the calcium. We said we have some pretty uh, profound shifts of both sodium and uh, fluids, so you really want to kind of go low sodium if you can. Fluid restrict about a liter. It could be helpful to prevent some of the fluid overload. Now, to detect the fluid overload, you clearly want to try to get daily weights, which is something I don't think most ICUs are good at it and, and really trying to get accurate weights, rates. Weights. Uh, you want to be mindful of the heart rate and rhythm, monitor that closely, so you're monitoring these people clearly in an intensive care environment. Uh, once the electrolytes are stable, it's appropriate the advanced feedings by say 2 to 250 kilocalories every couple of hours depending on stable blood electrolytes. Um, you want the weight gain to be probably no more than 2 to 3 pounds per week. Um, if you're getting more than 2 to 3 pounds per week, you're really dealing with fluid retention and, and we really want to look at that as to what is that say on an hourly rate. Other authors will say that you should really try to limit your fluids to about 800 milliliters per day plus replacements for insensible losses. So if you're dealing with, say, a burn patient, those insensible losses can be rather, rather dramatic. But again, be very mindful because these patients can very easily um, um, uh, go into fluid overload. Gaining, um, if you're gaining more than, say, uh, 0.25 kilograms per day or 1.5 kilograms per week, it probably represents fluid accumulation, which really doesn't represent a nutritional labor down of, of protein. Syndrome is something that we need to be very sensitive of. Uh, clearly, the patient comes in and their skin and bones, and they look like they've been uh, in an internment camp. That's pretty obvious, but it's probably more likely our patients are going to be less obvious. Cancer patients, elderly patients, uh, we need to be very mindful of. People who've had prolonged hospitalizations, perhaps in a skilled nursing facility, and have not had a good oral intake. The key we, we need to be mindful of is being very careful of those uh, intracellular ions, such as phosphate, calcium, and magnesium. They may appear initially normal, but the patient's total body is depleted. Though we may have a lot of vigor to get these patients rehydrated and get them up on full nutritional supplementation, we need to be mindful of that they're prone for the development of um, the development of congestive heart failure, uh, pulmonary edema, and that by rapid refeeding, we're only going to aggravate these potentially life-threatening electrolyte abnormalities. You have been listening to the podcast Surgery ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Thank you for downloading. We do have other content on the Internet as a tool for education. Uh, we have the podcast uh, Pre-Hospital, excuse me, Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional which is also available as a free download on iTunes. And we have the podcast, the PHTLS podcast, also available on iTunes as a free download. Um, we started a Facebook site. I uh, do a search on ICU rounds as a group, as an uh, environment for interchange of ideas, questions, discussions, cases, uh, and so forth. And if you find the podcast helpful, by all means, please go to the iTunes home site and uh, uh, leave your feedback. It encourages other people to come and participate. Thanks for downloading. Have a great day.